0: Fora TV podcasts are brought to you by the Wellness Channel. Sponsored by Pfizer at Fora.tv slash wellness.
1: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Hello, I'm Alexander. I'm the executive director at the Long Now Foundation. Stuart, unfortunately, can't be here tonight. He's uh, accepting an award in Chicago. Um, But I'm glad that all of you are in light of the opening games tonight of the Olympics. Clearly, some of you made it out instead of watching the smog in China. I'd also uh, just like to thank those of you who did come to the Mechanicrawl. Actually, can I see hands? How many people came? Oh, quite a few. Awesome. So we had over 1,000 people. We had no idea how many people would come, and uh, it was great to see uh, over 1,000 people come and check out the all the amazingness that is in San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf that nobody ever gets to see, except for the tourists, of course. Um, tonight, uh, Peter Schwartz will be doing the Q&A after the talk, and I just wanted to give a little bit of the backstory. It's actually uh, nice that Stuart isn't doing this because Stuart's actually a bit of the the fairy godmother of the of this story, which is, um, he, uh, he read a blog review uh, by Rick Clough of this book, who, um, the, the book was sent to him by Daniel Suarez's wife, and total cold call, the thing that says, that everybody says doesn't work, and he actually read it, which uh, nobody ever does, and then he reviewed it and he gave it a really great review. And Stuart saw it and then bought the book and put it on his shelf and it was, and there it sat for many months. And finally he pulled it off his shelf when he was looking for a new novel and he read it and he was amazed. Um, the book was really pushing new ground. It was doing it in a new way, not with necessarily new technology, but by combining new technolo- or the current technology in a totally fresh and interesting way and in some cases a pretty scary way. Um, since that time, he also introduced... Uh, Daniel to Peter Schwartz, who connected uh, connected him to Walter Parks of DreamWorks, and so there's now a uh, DreamWorks movie deal on its on its way. Anyway, um, and a two book deal with Dutton Publishers. So the books that we have are the remaindered copies from the original purchase we have. They're all signed out there, but they're the last ones of this uh, self-published edition. So if you don't get these, you're not going to be able to get the new edition until uh, January 9th. Um, They'll be available uh, here and in our store afterwards, and until we're we're out, you'll be able to get them. So Daniel tonight is going to be talking about the kind of themes that he worked on in this book, he's not going to be necessarily talking about the book itself, but like Neuromancer and Snow Crash, this, this type of book, when you read it, you realize you're reading something new and important. And you will be riveted. And um, he puts together the technology in a way that, uh, that I think is, is very important for our civilization in a way that uh, Werner Vinge is now working on as well. And here to talk about that tonight is Daniel Suarez.
2: Thank you, Alexander. Good evening, everybody. Now, some of you might be wondering what qualifies a novelist to speak on the topic of bot-mediated reality. So I'd like to address that first off. Who the hell is Daniel Suarez? Well, I'm a software guy. For the last 17 years, I've been designing and developing database management systems for large companies. I like your picture. (laughs) Now, I've been doing this in many industries, defense, finance, logistics, entertainment, and for the last seven years with my own company. Now, over the course of my career, I've noticed society's collective pursuit of hyper-efficiency. This has been a great concern of mine because it's been a pursuit of efficiency at the expense of almost everything else. Now, efficiency manifests itself in several ways. First of all, centralization. That's companies merging, becoming ever larger, achieving economies of scale, and fewer people making decisions that affect larger numbers of people. And that begets a monoculture. That's vast, uniform networks. Not just digital, but agricultural, industrial, financial, media. And part of this is also an elimination of redundancy. That is, trimming fat. Now, in nature, there's a use for fat. It's to deal with disruptions. Big business tries to minimize the amount of fat. And part of it also is a drive for ubiquitous connectivity that is unifying all of these vast networks to achieve centralized data management and analysis. And it's all of these things in the pursuit of efficiency that make it possible to achieve widespread automation. And by that I mean software automation or bots. And that's what I'm here to talk about tonight. Because bots are increasingly what we rely on to make decisions for us. As a matter of fact, we're increasingly taking our instructions directly from bots. Sometimes just on faith. Takes a while. I think this is in the Olympic Village, I'm not sure. Now my book, Demon, for those of you who aren't familiar with the scenario of that book, this story is one of a game designer who designs an array of bots that scan the internet for the appearance of his obituary. And when it appears on his death, these bots launch into action and begin to dismantle civilization as we know it. Now, as far-fetched as that sounds, didn't escape my notice that IT security experts didn't immediately dismiss this scenario. And that that should tell you something about the state of our our culture's infrastructure. Because I don't think it would take a singularity or a greater-than-human machine intelligence to trap the human race. I think it could be done with much simpler systems. Because one of the things about narrow AI, which is what bots are, is that they are great at allowing a very small number of people to run the underpinnings of society. While the great mass of people make few or no decisions of consequence, which is one of my big concerns. In fact, fact, I think... Soon, if not already, it might be possible for our society to run completely on autopilot. Nobody at the wheel. So you may, you may think, wow, Dan, that, that sounds pretty unlikely. But I'll go over a couple of ways that might happen. Because to me, that's the fundamental question of our time. Whether technology... Ooh, sorry, I'm bellowing here. Whether technology will, will liberate us or enslave us. And I think we need to get busy answering that question, and soon... Because uh, bots are not going away. They're going to be with us as long as civilization is here. So we need to get this decision, this, this done right. So before I continue, let me qual- clarify some terms. Uh, when I say a bot, most of you already know that it, that it stands for robot. And I, I don't mean this. And I, and I don't mean this. And under no circumstances do I mean this. Fabulous dance from the 80s. What I'm talking about is this. It's a software bot. It's a software application designed to accomplish a specific purpose. Now, this is the source code for an e-commerce bot that scrapes pricing information out of websites and accumulates it into a database, probably to be picked up by still other bots. So a bot does one or all of these three things. It searches for information, retrieves information, and acts upon information. And although these seem very harmless, these are really the building blocks for the whole biological world because cells retrieve chemicals and enzymes, pull them into the cell to act as catalysts to create all of the activity in a multicellular organism. So these are really, as I said, the building blocks for the natural world. So together they're very powerful. And knowingly or not, we've replicated this in the digital world. Now, if you look at the last item, act upon, that's the key one. Because that might get us headed back in this direction at some point. But uh, fortunately, not even Danny Hillis or Alexander Rose can build one of these yet. So that leaves us with digital bots for now. And digital bots are powered, of course, by AI. And artificial intelligence basically breaks down into two main branches. And I'm going to buzz through this because I'm sure you're all familiar with it but there's artificial general intelligence. Now, that's strong AI. And that differs from narrow AI in that this doesn't exist yet. But there's questions about when it might arrive. Now, a lot of the theories, like Werner Vinges' singularity theory, pontificate whether all of our networks might combine and soon create some greater-than-human machine intelligence. Likewise, Ray Kurzweil, talks about his, uh, the, the belief that by the end of this century, machine and human intelligence will merge into one. And then, of course, there's Kevin Kelly and his one machine concept that all of the processors on the world are starting to e- equate to neurons in the human brain. But the key thing about this is that it's been 30 years away for about 50 years already. So the only people making any money on it are science fiction authors and Hollywood, which leaves us with Weak or narrow AI. And these don't even try to approximate even animal intelligence. They do one thing very efficiently, and they're everywhere. They're all throughout society. As a matter of fact, they power the modern world. And that's because the modern world consists largely of data. We create mountains of data, and there aren't enough people to go through it all. And bots are supremely efficient at pouring through mountains of data that the modern world creates. And that's what gives them so much power over us as people. Finance, telecom, security, manufacturing, all creating this data. It's worth noting that bots determine whether you get a mortgage. They set your FICO score. As a matter of fact, bots might determine whether you get a job interview because resume scanners look for keywords. But bots also affect us on a much more personal level even than that. Radiology, MRI, these films are examined, pre-screened by bots for follow-up by doctors if an anomaly is detected. So instead of hiring 100 doctors, you can hire 10. It's hard to imagine a more direct impact on your life. As a matter of fact, you better hope they've written these bots well. But, of course, bots are also scanning through all of your medical records to see whether you need to have your medical insurance canceled. So so they're mining all of this data, but they're also listening to us as well and speaking to us. If you've called an airline or a credit card company recently, you've probably spoken to a bot. And actually, within the confines of a given business transaction, bots can understand and speak reasonably well with humans. As a matter of fact... Typical synthetic speech voice based entirely on text. Synthetic
0: voices seem rather fanciful.
2: Now, I have one with a Kentucky accent, but that seemed out of of sorts for here. But these voices allow a cost reduction of up to 90% in call centers. And that's the key, once again, is that bots are more efficient than humans. But, of course, bots are also listening to us in other ways. Bots are largely responsible for the removal of the limitations on wiretapping, because bots can be put onto a line to listen for key terms and once again notify a human being for follow-up. So that's a key thing. They've removed any limitations on wiretapping. But bots are, of course, also watching us. The ballooning number of surveillance cameras out in society is made possible largely by software because there aren't enough orcs in Mordor to watch all of these computer monitors. There are 500,000 surveillance cameras in the city of London, 2 million in the city of Shenzhen, China. And it's software that watches these monitors, looking for suspicious behavior like a sudden grouping of six or more people. They can increasingly recognize us by the way we walk, by our facial features, and also they can identify people by race. So cameras, sorry, bots, are really an unblinking eye, an ever-listening ear. And of course, they make key decisions about our lives based on our data. And that's why it's worrying that our collective control of the Internet seems to be slipping somewhat. Now, this graph shows the growth of malware, that is botnets, in the last two years. Now, during this time, there was a concerted effort by government, universities, and private industry to contain the spread of botnets, that is, armies of zombie computers controlled by bots. And yet, during this time, these botnets spread 2,162%. And that's despite a concerted effort to stop them. So I would argue that we're in a Darwinian struggle with narrow AI and that nature is currently selecting for bots and against humans and one reason efficiency we're just not as efficient in a structured society as bots it's partly due to a confluence of processing speed storage space increase the spread of the internet and bandwidth has made this possible and anytime you bring a human in to do a job, they bring a whole bunch of other stuff in with it, like emotions, philosophy, goals, which bots do not bring. So having a big brain, as we do, is no guarantee of success in nature. In fact, most organisms on Earth do not have a big brain, and do quite fine. Parasites, for instance, don't even have a central nervous system, much less a brain, and they outnumber all Other organisms on Earth three to one. So, having a big brain is no guarantee guarantee of success. And as a matter of fact, humanity in general is not guaranteed a starring role in nature's pageant. And that's why it's important to understand the scope of this situation. Just look at the numbers. This is the growth of the Internet over the last 15 years, from 1995 projected out to 2010, from 16 million to 1.6 billion people. Now, that's people using the Internet. But, of course, as that network expands, so does the environment for programs. So this really isn't a perfect measure of the growth of the bot ecosystem. A better measure would be hard drive space on all of planet Earth. Fortunately, someone's keeping track of that as well. And in the next five years, it's projected to go up 1,000%. Pardon me, 1,000%. Which is much steeper than the growth in human users. And we all know that our hard drives are expanding in size and memory. And that creates a vaster environment for bots to run in. So we must be getting some benefit out of this if we're building this vast network for these synthetic organisms. Well... Pardon the purple, it's actually blue on my screen. The human race is expanding in numbers, and that's good. We learned how to fix nitrogen into the soil. But what about us individually? What about the value of human life? There it's a little different story. And this is a disagreeable-looking slide because it's about slavery. And many people think that slavery is a thing of the past, but unfortunately we are living right now through a golden age of slavery. There are 27 million slaves known on the planet right now. It's more than at any point in recorded human history. So if we look in the United States at what a healthy male sold for, adjusted for inflation, it was $40,000 in 1850. In the year 2000, traffickers sell a healthy male laborer for $600. So clearly our human stock is dropping. Which is surprising because we're big-brained animals, we're the most innovative, we're capable of great flexibility. And yet a rack server, a good one, goes for about $1,000. Who is using this network more, this Internet, machines or or humans? Ah, sad news there, too. By 2010, Ziff Davis projects that machine-to-machine transactions will outnumber all human use of the Internet. Partly this is because of EDI, electronic data interchange, from all the companies out there, leveling inventories, automatically ordering things from each other there's also sensors on pipelines and smartphones and location tracking devices. But I put forward that we're hooking and injecting into the internet hundreds of millions of bots without any clear consideration about the consequences to humanity. And also there's no broad examination going on about how these bots might interact with each other. And that's without advanced intelligence, just simple reactions. A good example of that was Wall Street in 1987. October 19th, 22.6% of the value of Wall Street disappeared in one day, and it was because of program trading, bots reacting to each other. That's half a trillion dollars in value. Remember also that bots don't observe borders, They don't share our priorities. They don't need clean air or water, and they don't need liberty either. So I would suggest that bots are potentially a vector for human despotism as well. Because very few people are needed to run systems with bots. And as fewer people make decisions, fewer people are needed to make decisions. And they don't learn to make decisions. And that makes a smaller number of people knowledgeable enough to sustain civilization. And we might lose our ability to control society. So who's building all these bots, anyway? Usual cast of characters, of course, corporations build tons of them to encapsulate business knowledge. Governments create mountains of data that corporations and governments have to mine. You might be surprised to see religions up there. Religions do things like uh, protect their Wikipedia page. They might create a bot to keep an eye on it, make sure nobody changes it. And the good thing about a bot is it'll work 24-7 and it doesn't have to obey the Sabbath. Criminal groups make some of the most sophisticated bots out there because they have to be stealthy in addition to doing what they're doing. And, of course, there's just every individual student researcher, hacker, gray hat, white hat, black hat, creating this a galaxy of software that's doing, who knows? And this zoo of bots I divide into two families, datavores, that is, bots that munch on data, and predators. And you might be surprised to see game bots on the predator side. But actually, they inform the malware and botnet family. Because actually, game bots are where some of the most sophisticated software is being made right now. Games, online games in particular, reveal a a lot about the future, I think, for social interactions, and especially about our interactions with bots, artificial life, so we have a lot to learn, actually, from from games. I know it's shameless to use kittens, but... I'm actually showing this to make a point. All juvenile mammals indulge in play. It's our way of probing new realities and of learning our place in them. And so I would I would argue that this is fundamentally the same thing as this. Because people are probing new realities. Now, as work becomes more network-based and less reality-based, this is very useful. I think it's one of the reasons why people play games now well into adulthood. It's because the, the world is changing so fast that we're continually juvenile in at least one aspect of our lives. Games... Online games in particular are also where humans interact most visibly with artificial life forms, bots, because there are bots all over the place in online games. This is the game Second Life, and this is the reporter Wagner James Ow conversing with a, a chat bot. Now, the difference here is that this bot looks like a bot. The truth is, in most online games, Bots look just like we do in games, that is a 10-foot panther with twin scimitars, but they're indistinguishable from us, visually. And the truth is, nobody knows how many... I know, (laughs) cover the children's eyes. I love the way he outs the guy. Nobody knows how many bots there are in online games. I should have known better to have a scrolling. Uh, that's, that's quite interesting. But you take a game like World of Warcraft. That's an economy of 10 million people. And that's bigger in, than some real world small countries. Actually, I think I might pause it. I, I should probably pause it before it gets to the really racy part, but... So if you're in World of Warcraft and you're competing against bots because people write bots to play World of Warcraft, and I don't mean to pick on Blizzard here because any successful online game where you can sell virtual things like virtual gold or magic items on the open market, efficiency counts. And wherever efficiency counts, you'll find bots. And so games like World of Warcraft have bots in them. And that makes it so that players, human players, are competing in this virtual space for virtual gold and for quests against artificial life forms. And this is not a science fiction thing. This is really happening every day. And as more bots appeared and players became irritated, publishers like Blizzard created programs like Warden. And what Warden does is it tries to find bots running on your computer with the game client. And as Blizzard started trying to find bots, bot developers made them stealthy. And it creased down with Dr. Gary McGraw of Sigital Incorporated. He's a foremost software security expert. He's also with Greg Hoagland, the author of the books... Sorry, Exploiting Online Games and Exploiting Software. And he had this to say on the subject of game bots and its implications for security software in general.
3: The most interesting thing that's happening now is you want to build a botting system that's totally undetectable so that you can have this game be played automatically and you don't have to be there, be present. You build a a bot or a an AI program to play the game for you but it has to be undetectable so a lot of work has gone into (laughs) stealthiness and hiding processes and things that rootkits traditionally do the interesting thing that happened is the whole thing shifted and now in my view rootkit technology is actually being driven by gaming exploits so as an example of how gaming technology is leading rootkits can think about an undetectable bot system that uses the fact that most PCs today are multi-core systems so strangely the game companies have decided to monitor the game process in user land on the same processor however if you use a hardware interrupt and just stop that processor guess what else stops the monitoring software then you do some other exploit processing on the other core, inject a payload, and off you go. And since there's no Rip Van Winkle monitoring capability yet on these things, um, you can get away with that and build a a insanely undetectable bot these days. So who would have thought that such sophisticated software
2: would be put towards playing games? And That's why I think online games are the larval stage of something much more serious in both our society and in our relationship with bots, in general. This is an animation that shows major botnet activity over a seven-day period in the world. And once again, botnets are armies of compromised computers. Now, in red, you'll see the storm botnet, and orange is the kraken botnet. And you'll notice, as the workday passes, the activity blooms. It's like an algal bloom. It's very much a natural system. This is what I mean about botnets evolving serious stealth because, remember, no one can stop these botnets. No one. Their numbers, anywhere from half a million, and I love this, the upper end, 20 million. That's how wide the spread is. Nobody's quite sure how many there are out there. And the creators of these botnets, once again, nobody really knows who they are, but they're a very small number of people who have a great deal of power because they can rent time on these botnets to either send spam or to direct distributed denial-of-service attacks against any target on the Internet. And that has real-world consequences. I'll give you one example. A company named Blue Security in Herzliya, Israel, in May 2006, This is an internet security company. It tried to defend its clients from an attack knocking their clients off the internet. And the botnet then turned to Blue Security, focused its attack on them, prevented them from connecting to the internet no matter what they did, and they eventually went out of business. And then the botnet turned its attention back on its original targets. That was in Wired Magazine in May 2006. Now, Information Week, has said that the biggest botnets can knock entire countries off the Internet. And the Kraken botnet is estimated to have already penetrated 50 of the Fortune 500 companies. And remember, very few individuals control these, and they're the number one threat to our collective control of the Internet, which is worrisome in a way, because bots are increasingly passing for human. In everyday communications. Now by that I don't mean they're passing the Turing test, this is more of a short-form Turing test. You look at the way we used to communicate, writing beautiful letters like in the 19th century, Dearest Martha, the children and I are fine. Everybody had different handwriting and we even had difficulty reading each other's handwriting. But today, very often OMG, LOL, simple symbolic language. But again, that's not the way we typically communicate. Very typically, we'll go to a website, we'll choose from drop-down combo lists, multiple choice items. These are all things bots are capable of doing. And it's because we're trying to be highly efficient in our communications and accelerate things that it's made the bar lower. Kapschkas can also be defeated by bots. Those are the completely automated public Turing test to tell humans and computers apart. The little squiggly lines at the bottom of a web page. Those can now be cracked in 60 seconds by bots. So that line is blurring. So when we break tasks into bot-like repetition, as we are doing, we remove the value of the unique adaptability of the human brain when we break it down into simple structured systems. Human beings are also programmable as we've seen in certain social setups. Any society that values obedience and devalues independent thought goes into this category. Now, the disciplines of propaganda and advertising have been honed to a razor's edge to press our buttons and get a predictable response. So if you can't tell a human from a bot, what's to prevent a bot from pushing your buttons, from getting you to react in certain specific ways? Well, you might think that would, that would require that we be visible to bots moment. By moment. And actually, as bots are exploding in size and influence over us, so too is our visibility to them. As a matter of fact, you're you're probably wearing this handy tracking device. It's a cell phone. Every few seconds, its position is recorded in three-dimensional space. And that data doesn't go away. It accumulates. Same is true of your financial transactions. All of these things build a picture of you, who you are, and what you're doing. Now, Bruce Schneier, the renowned cryptographer and security expert, calls this data pollution. That's the cost of gathering data, storing it, retrieving it, has essentially dropped to zero, which means data never goes away. So that over time, you can go back and determine where somebody's been for years, every single moment. Remember, bots are uniquely good at mining data. And you may not have a problem with this, actually. You might trust your government or whomever. But what about 10 years from now? Or what if that data gets sold, or maybe even to a foreign government? And if you travel, that might be a concern as well. Because it builds a complete profile of you probably more than you know about even yourself. In 2005, MIT researcher Nathan Eagle did a study called Reality Mining, where they tracked 1,000 cell phones as they moved around campus. And at the end of that study, they wrote an algorithm that could predict with 85% accuracy what any individual was going to do next. And that's the power of simple software. No conspiracy necessary. So you might wonder what sort of data is being gathered on a routine basis out there in in reality. Now this is a typical urban street. Once again, this is today. If we zoom in, we can see surveillance cameras. Of course, these are wired in, once again, to a system. The data is archived and software is analyzing the images keeping it for long periods of time. But those aren't the only surveillance cameras out in the world. There's private surveillance cameras. Possibly nowhere near as well secured, data for sale to divorce attorneys. And then, of course, up at the end of the block, some, some weird guy with a webcam pointed at the street. Once again, available to the web, visible to bots. All of this visual data creates a context for the other data points that are being gathered. By cell phones, by smartphones, emails, and so forth. And then, of course, there's the almost legacy process of gathering license plate numbers programmatically to track automobiles, but that's less and less necessary because new technologies make it easier. I'll pause this here. Now, many of you have Bluetooth devices in your car. But you may not know about the TPMS system. This is the Tire Pressure Monitoring System. It was federally mandated by the 2001 TRED Act. That's right, you all remember voting for this, right? It says that any car manufactured after 2007 has to have wireless nozzle pressure measurement devices that communicate with the computer on board the car to see that your tires are safely inflated. Now, they have to have a unique ID so that the computer knows your tires from the car next to you. And of course, it is an open standard, and it makes it very simple to track the unique identity of an automobile. But of course, to do that, you would have to have devices scanning. Fortunately, such scanners have started to spring up at choke points throughout modern cities. These are privately owned scanners. The data being gathered and stored again because it's cheap to store data, vast amounts of data. This data can be piled up along with your financial transactions and anything else, and bots can go through it to find persons of interest or to just find patterns or even just to sell you stuff. I'll give you an example of just a few such devices. There's a Blue Sweep scanner, and a Blue Sweep scanner is a device that's able to identify all Bluetooth devices within its radius, identify what their capabilities are, and what exploits they might be vulnerable to. A blue sniper can do this up to a kilometer away. Let's go a little further down the wall. There's the blue snarfer you were all expecting. Now, a blue snarfer can use an exploit in, in, given to it by a blue sweeper to steal your address book, your text messages, your calendar, your pictures of your kiddies. And a Bluetooth car whisperer can push advertising into your car speakers through your car's Bluetooth system. Now, more worrisome, it could also be used to hook into your car Bluetooth phone system to eavesdrop on conversations in the car. Now, if you combine that with something like the TPMS system or any future open standard device, you could pretty much track a car and listen to its occupants as they move throughout the city at any point in the future or at the moment it's happening. Now, so you're walking through this gauntlet of scanning activity with all your wireless devices. And again, I'm sure we were all aware of this. And then there's, of course, the Financial transactions, every time we buy stuff with a debit card or a credit card. Who, what, where, when. Combine that with visual data and all of the other points that tell us who was there with you, where you were going. It can be used to tell some very interesting stories. So it's a great constellation of information being gathered on us at all times. And then, of course, privately owned devices hoovering up all this information. So this is the world you live in right now. Who knows what it will be like 10 years from now? And this goes into the increasing complexity of the bot ecosystem in general. Because all of these corporate mergers have created a vastly complex system that no one really understands. You take mergers where they lay off half the IT staff, they have half-finished projects, Maybe bots running that are completely forgotten, doggedly pursuing some original purpose that no one knows about. And also, maybe even competing with each other even though the company is now one and not two. And then, of course, there's the occasional disgruntled employee who takes over the network. And I know that sounds impossible. But... (laughs) So this could lead to a loss of human authority. Humans no longer fully being in control. Because it's really a system where historical decisions rule. Somebody or some group of people created an algorithm that decided something was true a while back and it is put into force and other people obey what it has to say. And over time it becomes a black box, a proprietary mechanism that might in turn be folded into yet another algorithm which becomes a black box and less people understand the proof of the logic that went into that algorithm. Now, Kurt Vonnegut wrote a book called The Player Piano where society was completely on autopilot. Bots ran everything, including the factories. But I wonder if bots would be the ones working in the factories because we might get the crap jobs. Because you don't need to have a body to manage a structured process. And that's what society has become. A structured process. Humans offloading decision-making authority. And ask yourself, would you notice? Do you, do you, do you really know that 75% of the decisions being made at your bank aren't being made by bots right now? Probably not. So rather than rising to some great complex golden age, I am concerned that human civilization might take a sidetrack and head towards a Boolean age, that is a, a time categorized or described as a constant bombardment of categorical questions that you must answer. You can't pose any questions that aren't asked directly of you. And I think we see elements of that already. So that's a structured existence in a structured society, and it is supremely efficient. And I think such a thing could give rise very easily to an elite group of people who would be the ones who understand how society works and everybody else just answering the questions. And here's a quote from Carl Sagan's book, demon-haunted world, science as a candle in the darkness. Carl Sagan wrote, Science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking. I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues when the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide almost without noticing back into superstitions and darkness. And I think that's the real danger there is having a small group of people understanding how society works. So that's bots as a control mechanism. Economic disenfranchisement at the flip of a bit. And you might not even know what went into making that decision about you because remember, we have vast quantities of data about us. And bots are making qualitative decisions about us all the time as a matter of fact it might not be a person who decides who makes that decision it might be an algorithm what if control erodes further though what if the last person who knew how to stop something or the last person with the password dies or quits i think we could easily picture a bot controlled corporation because Corporations are already termed unnatural persons in the eyes of the law. They have all of the rights of a human being, privacy, freedom of speech, with the big difference being that they don't ever die. And that's very similar to a bot. So what if steps were made by corporations to give civil rights of some type to bots? For instance, that you don't have the right to delete them from your system. And that sounds a lot like DRM, actually, come to think of it. Because you've got to ask yourself, who controls the data on your system and in these systems? That's a perfect example of humans ceding some of their rights to bots. So where does that leave us? I actually, I don't think it's this bad. Although I have painted a very dreary picture. Uh, If I count through it, I said that bots' environment is exploding in size, their power over us is increasing vastly, Uh, humanity's value is plummeting, and let's see, we're losing control of civilization. But (laughs) I do think there's hope, because one thing humans do supremely well is adapt. Adapt. We're incredibly flexible and adaptable creatures. Now, bots are inflexible without us. And even primitive human societies can innovate tremendously when necessary. And in nature, flexibility typically wins. So, if we were to start over, what would we do differently? Well this is the long now foundation so let's think big. What if we built a new internet? Just for starters. But this time built it to benefit the greatest number of people possible. What if we tried to make it support our preferred way of government that is democracy? Because I think in the past we've built systems as a tool for society. What if we made systems, IT systems, the fabric of society itself, a reflection of it? Could we build an operating system for democracy? Could we hard-code our values into the DNA of civilization? I think we might be able to. I think a way that we could start this time would be by building an encrypted network, a dark net to begin with, that is not open automatically to all comers. And I think we'd have at least a couple of qualifications for entry into this encrypted network. One would be that you are verifiably human. And not to be too exclusive, I think we could let some bots in because they are useful when they behave. But of course, we would have to know the source code of these bots. So any bots that we would let into this proposed system would have to be whitelisted, that is, a critical mass of humans would need to review the code and agree that they are benign. And, of course, any misbehaving bot must be able to be banished by collective human action, that is, a critical mass of humans voting them out. And this would have to be baked into this network from the very start. And I think we would also have to have a secure cryptographic hash algorithm to make sure that the source code of these bots doesn't change. And once again, if it does Bots are automatically expunged. But that still leaves the question of how to differentiate bots from humans, which is what started this, after all. Because they are a potentially aggressive organism. And I think the answer to that is literally all around us. I think it's three-dimensional space. Because if we project this new network on top of reality, it's very difficult for a bot to pretend to be us. This has been called augmented reality, and it's been kicked around for a few years. But I think self-defense against bots, us developing a new sensory perception, is a, an ideal reason, a driving reason, to implement such a system. Because that's what we need to do, is develop new senses. Now, in my book, Demon, such a system is implemented. It's called D-Space in that. And by projecting data onto three-dimensional space and seeing bots and other, other organisms coming at you when they want to change your data, that really simulates what's happening because anytime your data changes, it is potentially a threat to you. But the human mind is wired to see it graphically. And if we created an Internet much like this, we might better be able to defend ourselves against these things. Now, we would need heads-up glasses or a haptic display, but we wouldn't need to wear them all the time. I think we could get a buzz on our smartphone that tells us something's changed and we could put on our spectacles and look into the next dimension. I think we could do that. But the key is that in this type of network, you would be in control of your data. Any time it changed, you would know it. Because in the modern world already, you are your data. If your data goes bad, you're in a heap of trouble. So this really is self-defense. And I think this darknet would operate in parallel to the existing Internet. And I think people would opt into it to get control of their data, if nothing else. And especially... I think they would be willing to join a network where human action, collective action, could banish bots. And I think this is already familiar to us, because we're already doing this in games, carrying call-outs over our head, projecting data onto three-dimensional space. When I said that games, online games, are a larval stage of something more serious in our social relationships, and in our relationship with bots, this is what I meant. I think we're practicing for something in online games. Social networks, wikis, online games. We're exploring new realities. We're already working on this. As a matter of fact, we already have the coordinate system worked out. It's called GPS. So we have built big pieces of the infrastructure of this type of network. But how would a new network like this, a dark network, person to person, I think it would look very much like an online game. Walking with a call out to those on the network. Carrying your name, your reputation, your experience, your skills, so that people can recognize each other. Now people who are privacy advocates might look at this and say, oh my God, this is a nightmare. But I would point out that your data is probably being sold to somebody just this moment. And at least in this new network, you would know any time someone touched your data. You would know it instantly. You would receive your ratings in such a system by your past interactions with other network members. As you dealt with them, they would rate you and you would rate them. And you would classify their skills, and this would start to develop an open-source database on what this civilization can do collectively. It would keep its collective records as part of the system. And it's good to have reputation in context, especially if you're trying to buy a car or something like this, (laughs) like the undercoating. I wonder if it would encourage like-minded people to hang out together, to get better ratings. And I'm not sure that that's bad. I'm not, I, don't, I haven't decided yet, but it might make for some interesting changes in society. But what about bots pretending to be human? Because, of course, that's one of the reasons we've designed this. It would be very difficult for a bot to masquerade as human in such a system. Because remember, illicit bots, bots that do not have their code approved by a critical mass of people would be banished instantly, which would leave bots masquerading as humans as the only way to get around. But, of course, a a call-out hovering over nothing is a dead giveaway, and hiring people to hold your bot for you doesn't scale very well. It's very expensive. So this has a sort of built-in natural protection against that. And I do think that this type of social arrangement has even greater implications, actually. Because bots, although they are a threat, we've dealt with threatening organisms before. We've developed symbiotic relationships with threatening organisms before. And the very disinterestedness of bots in us is their great usefulness. Because impartiality, is a cornerstone of blind justice. And blind justice is a cornerstone of democracy. So one could picture that open-source bots, that is, bots that have their source code reviewed by everybody and available to all, could be supremely useful and impartial about human affairs. And this would be a bot-mediated reality. This would be bots examining what's going on in the real world and moving information and decisions through civic society on our behalf. I'm going to get a laser pointer for this and step you through this imposing diagram. So here we see the old dirty Internet and, of course, the new darknet constantly gathering news about the real world. News items, rumors, blog entries, and there could be a layer of civic bots, open-source, approved, gathering this information on a moment-by-moment basis and distributing small bits of it to citizens in this dark net. The bots don't have to know what the news means. They just pass it to big-brained humans who can sort it out. And as a citizen, part of your duty, your civic duty, would be occasionally to receive this information, and you only have to do two things. You have to categorize it and prioritize it. So if you're walking along and you receive a message that there's been an oil spill, you might think that's a very high-priority item. And you might categorize it as ecological pollution and send it on its way. And then a second layer of civic bots would gather all of the information from all of the people who received that exact same item. And it might be thousands of people. And it would determine whether it was collectively perceived as a high priority. And those high priority items, we'd already know the category generally that people assigned it to. And because we collectively have been evaluating each other in our past interactions, we know who the experts in ecological pollution are in society. And so would these bots. And they would direct that high-priority ecological pollution news item to the experts in society. And the experts would further evaluate it. They would vet it and determine whether it was in fact real, whether it was in fact high-priority. Once again, the bots don't know, they don't care. It's just information that's of concern to us. And that's why this is more of an operating system for for democracy. We're collectively deciding. So these experts, if they still rate this as a high-priority item, the next layer of civic bots would then identify a high-level, high-reputation expert in ecological pollution, take the recommendations of the experts to assign resources to it, and put them in charge. And so this is a self-organizing system. There's no central leader. It's assignment of political power on an as-needed basis, which evaporates when the need goes away. So there's no central authority, nothing to attack. Now in the past, if, if everyone could get 15 minutes of fame in this system everybody could get 15 minutes of power. Now, there's still infection and malware, but a diverse open-source system like this can deal with that much better. because it's a natural system. It's constantly evolving. There are many hands involved in it. Because static systems are doomed in nature, as they are in digital networks. So in conclusion, now that I've worn you all out, Although bots do permeate the modern world and they present a potential danger to us and they're not going away, I really do think that we can achieve a symbiotic relationship with narrow AI. And I think we can make them the impartial arbiters of a democratic society. And I think that's the type of network we should be working on. So thank you very much. Thank evening.
0: Daniel, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Brilliant. Thank you. you. Appreciate it. For those of you who uh, haven't read it, uh, uh, for me it was one of those uh, remarkable experiences. It happens every once in a while. Uh, You read a book and suddenly the world changes in front of you. This is uh, one of those kinds of books that suddenly the world, the future, what was possible, uh, changed for me. Uh, And and as you might imagine, given what I do, I read a lot of this stuff. And it is a very, very rare moment, and that was one of those very rare moments. So thank you, David. Thank you. I appreciate uh, it. It is hard mm-hmm. to surprise Stuart. It is hard to surprise me. You did it. Cool. Um, so uh, I have a couple questions, and then we have a number of questions from the audience. But, but first of all, you began by saying, you know, you're a software guy. Why a novel?
2: Oh, I don't know. I guess I've always had a novel in me. I always wanted to write a novel. I have an English literature undergraduate degree. <laughs> I finally used it. <laughs> no, actually, I use it every day in talking to executives and trying to translate between programmers and executives. That's where I use that English literature degree.
0: Well, I, I must confess it shows. In that it's also a well written story. It's a hell of a oh, good thank story. You for that. So, you know, I mean, it shows. Okay. Not everybody out here is a software junkie. What's a rootkit?
2: A rootkit is a stealthy piece of software that takes root access control of your system. And there are different types. There's a kernel rootkit, which essentially takes your operating system, and it slips underneath it, and it runs your operating system. So when you try to run antivirus, the antivirus can't see the rootkit because the rootkit says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to detect me. So it's something that runs your system in a stealthy manner. Thank you. Thank you. Okay,
0: Um, so, you know, obviously these uh, bots... Uh, don't have values, they don't have uh, uh, aspirations, they're just kind of carrying out algorithms. Correct. Uh, they're very banal. Uh, but, of course, uh, we had uh, the wonderful, uh, excruciating phrase from Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, does this imply that uh, these are, in some sense, evil? Um, that maybe we should be getting rid of our cell phones, that these are no, the, no. You know, the, 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 the root of all evil? Is well, it's like
2: this. Any automatic system can be used for bad purposes. You could create a door-closing mechanism, and then some jerk can put some innocent person in the way, and it can smash them. So, you know, automated systems do exactly what we say, but they typically don't have a sense of context so they can be invaded to accomplish some very bad thing by people. So if you get rid of your cell phones and all this other stuff, I don't think it would help. I think it's better if we build in mutual safeguards so that if I misuse a system, you'll know about it.
0: Darknets. Yeah,
2: I think, I think. Because then you, then you know in order to get into the system, your identity is known. And that's the key, I think, to reputation systems.
0: Now, I, I want to talk for a moment about uh, your use of nature as a metaphor here. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you don't mean it as a metaphor. Um, yeah, it's literal uh, but, but, but question, first of all, uh, you, you began with efficiency. Is efficiency the only goal of a bot?
2: Once again, I don't think bots have goals. It might be the only goal of the designer of the bot because I think there's this drive for constant efficiency. And if I remember correctly, in nature, in the absence of parasitic infestation, Species will tend towards parthenogenesis, that is cloning. And then when parasites are introduced into that system, the genetic monoculture that's been created quickly crashes. So this happens in nature, and I think that's kind of what we're building in real life, in our digital networks, as a mean, monoculture. How
0: does that, that natural selection actually work for bots?
2: Well, we're the, the evolutionary mechanism for bots, and I think it's largely measured by efficiency, how much efficiency a bot can achieve in a given task, and also survivability, although we are constantly putting a hardened shell around our systems rather than letting the bots fend for themselves in an open network, which I sometimes wonder about, because when you see a botnet get behind a network, it can very quickly cause major problems. I hope that answered your question.
0: Okay. Let's give it another shot. You well, want... well, no, that's all right. Let's, let's, let's go to some of the questions from the audience. Uh, Seth Franklin, where are you? Over here. Uh, Is it really appropriate to say bots make decisions? Aren't they just executing algorithms like a car or a bicycle?
2: Yeah, correct, actually, they they are. They're regurgitating decisions that someone made, possibly in some other context. But, once again, they'll do so remorselessly. So, uh, actually, when I say we're letting bots make a decision for us, they're following a logical pattern. Those of you who used, uh, you know, Map quest to get here. You allowed a bot to make decisions for you how to get here, and mostly that's not a problem. So it's it's that class of decisions that you mean?
0: Correct. Okay. Straight boolean. Yes, no, right, left. Now coming back to the uh, the, the natural metaphor, uh, is there any evidence yet of bots actually evolving or mutating? No, not on their own. And I think well, there's there's genetic
2: algorithms that do that. You know, where you run several generations. But that's by design. That's by design. And bots, once again, if they don't perform well or they don't sell well, the engineers go back and reconfigure the algorithm in the hope that they become more efficient or don't make mistakes. And inventory leveling applications are a good example of that because if you have too much stock around, you've made bad decisions in your algorithm. So they will evolve over time through human help to become more efficient.
0: Well, okay, but what we when we see in, in nature, you know, uh, organisms... Um, Uh, mutating either uh, uh, alone or through uh, various genetic combinations. Uh, What's going on? There's a catalyst for it somewhere. Well, what's going on at the level of software that actually makes that happen?
2: I I think efficiency is the driver. I think that is the the thing that causes mutation, that constantly seeking more efficiency by humans. Once again, we are the evolutionary mechanism for these narrow AI agents.
3: Thank you.
0: Okay. Uh, Bob? topic: where are you? Over there. Everybody over here. Okay. Uh, so now it's the Unabomber. Uh, Ted Kaczynski. remember okay. Ted Kaczynski? I think he's still, yeah, he's I do. still in prison, prison, right? He said at so. some point pulling the plug will be uh, more dangerous than leaving it running. Oh, that's a perfect too late example. Yet? Oh, I would think to pull the plug, definitely. Uh, we, because, we could pull the plug.
2: Oh, I don't know. You've got a lot of people, all of the systems that feed everybody. You know when there's a news story saying there's a storm coming? and then suddenly you go down to the supermarket and there's, like, no food on the shelves, it kind of shows how razor-thin the margin is. So if somebody starts unplugging these things, even just distributing food would not go so well. So that's why I'm saying it's, it's difficult to unplug it. It would be disruptive, but I don't think we can unplug the Internet. We have to grow something else alongside it. So he was right.
0: It's too late. Oh, it's too late. I mean, yeah. the, the, it, we, we live That was in my long-winded end. English major way of saying, oh, it's too late. Right. <laughs> So, I mean, does this imply uh, that uh, we ought to have changes in laws, uh, government policies? Uh, somebody wrote this but didn't put their name on it. Uh, what would help prevent bot-enabled oppression? Who wrote this question? A bot. A bot obviously, right? Yeah. So it's see, trying you, to figure out what you're going to say and figure out the attack right. against it. All right. So this, so, this you
2: is know, the, it, it occurred to me that, you know, when I was talking about tracking, it's, it's like – It's Sappho bot. Well, no, oh, good. No, that is the writing neat? Yes, okay. it is. And in fact, you know, you're right. It does actually look it's like Sappho. Sappho. <laughs> so what was the question again? <laughs> uh,
0: the question was, uh, what you know, are there laws, uh, policies that we ought to be considering uh, to prevent the ultimate takeover?
2: I would say the one policy that would help is many hands coding and having involvement and say in how things are constructed. And I think right now... Very much big business runs things and efficiency drives big business. So until those laws are changed that put business interest against ahead of pretty much all other interests, I, I find it hard to believe that things could change.
0: So as long as we're really just trying to optimize the kind of effectiveness of society, how it's all Correct. working smoothly, that our money goes where it wants, the goods goes where it's supposed to, mm-hmm. the electricity runs the way it's supposed to, the telephone That's networks right. runs the way it's supposed to, it's so all of that we're trying to optimize, why then there's nothing we want to change, right?
2: Except when a disruption happens. That, that becomes more like a house of cards after a while. And we've seen disruptions before in power supplies and other things. You know, back when many people owned these things individually and they were all competing against each other, I think you would have had a hard time bringing the power grid down because these people didn't connect it to each other. But now that it's a vast monoculture, you know, a tree falls on the wrong thing and the whole damn thing goes down.
0: So, you know, that would be one example. Uh, Max, back there. So, uh, you know, if, if you were a Marxist, Why, what you would argue is, and and I'm not saying you're a corporation. but you may or may not be, Uh, but this is a a classic Marxist argument. Uh, So what about the notion that humanity must first be oppressed in order to revolt? Uh, wow. That in fact the the bots are part of the natural order that will lead to further human evolution because they are in fact our natural. Uh, you know, since we, we are opponent, yeah. You know, well, you know, uh, we, we're uh, people with higher brains. We have to create competitors with, in effect, higher brains to force us to evolve. You know, guys with bigger muscles aren't. You know, we're not going out- to compete tigers and lions and. I sense a cycle animals, but coming there. Brain. Yeah, right. You know, so is this really about us creating our natural predator? to be able to evolve?
2: That's an interesting uh, question. Did
0: Is that the sense of your question?
2: Did, did okay. he get it right? Uh, I suppose that's possible, although that kind of reduces it to this uh, futile gesture, building a civilization, if just to then build something to destroy it. But um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. and It's a pretty philosophical question. Well, another philosophical question. Oh, good.
0: Uh so what's left for humanity to do once our basic needs are met by bots? Is it just writing more bots?
2: Well then then you get to the question of of what are we here for? You know? If society is gonna run without us, I imagine we'd start killing each other pretty quickly. I do think humans need challenges and I think if everybody's involved in trying to make society enjoyable. The maximum number of people. I think we're nowhere near to solving that problem. So that would give us plenty to do, and I think just making it supremely efficient would make it really good for just a tiny number of people. So that's kind of where I was heading. So
0: right. suboptimum's better.
2: Yeah, yeah, it might be. You know, because uh, how many how many
0: Gulfstream five jets do you need? You know, you have one. I'll take one. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so you, pers- you you showed us something on screen that I thought was actually quite powerful: the, the image of the urban environment today mm-hmm. that we all inhabit, and uh, the array of sensors within which we live, uh, and the array of networks connected to those sensors, mm-hmm. and the capacity to understand, manage, manipulate, distribute That's the right. data in very very rich ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there once was a time uh, when we lived in such an environment. It was called a village, and the sensors were the eyeballs and the ears of our neighbors, exactly. right? Well, that's uh, a and reputation system. And so, on. And, and, and so, we, you know, uh, we lived in, a, in a, a not bot-mediated but human-mediated sensory reality in which we had no privacy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, privacy is a new phenomenon. It was partially an urban phenomenon or really rural phenomenon. You lived out in the boonies, or uh, you could live in an apartment. Nobody knew who you were, what you did. You could walk the streets, and you could be anonymous, and so on. Uh, So privacy is a really new thing. Uh, You've described a world in which privacy is over. Uh, Is privacy over? Uh,
2: I hope it can make a comeback. (laughs) But the thing is, you talked about a village, and when you're walking around in a village, if people look at you, you see them looking at you. And I think the big problem now is... People are looking at you, but you have no idea who or how many people or what they're doing with the data. Especially if you see some of the algorithms that place you in certain categories that would just amaze you. But it's because they're examining you and they might know you, that is the developers of these algorithms, better than you know yourself. So I think it's a very different thing. I mean, sure, it involves privacy, but I think it takes it to a whole new level and it puts it behind this veil where you have no knowledge of what's going on behind behind the scenes.
0: So it's okay for your neighbors to know, but it's not okay for they wouldn't know either. Pardon?
2: No humans individually, I think, would know. I think big corporations and, and organizations that are that are mining this data for patterns would know.
0: Is there anything we can do to change that? That's a tough one. Well,
2: right now it's a done deal mm-hmm. until there are major changes legislated legislatively to do that, and I think that's tough.
0: I mean, for example, when what could you do, and what, when you think about legislation?
2: You could say you need to declare, you need to tell people, and, you know, you probably get these privacy notices. I not you love the way you get them every year? You're like, no, this year, I'm fine. You can take all my data.
0: And they make you fill it out every year. They'll wear you down eventually. Okay. So, we, we you know, uh, a number of times here at Long Now, uh, we've had the rise of the arts, Uh, challenging some of the ideas uh, uh, that we've seen in the world of the sciences and technology. So... uh uh, you know, we, we think about uh, uh, the tinfoil hat to protect yes. ourselves. and We all we remember when we, there were pyramids and so on to protect ourselves from uh, the bad vibes the in pyramids the pyramids
2: didn't save the Egyptians.
0: It, it so. didn't save the Egyptians. Uh, but is there uh, some defense mechanism that an individual who tries to opt out of the network, in effect, can do?
2: No, no I, I think right now. If you, if you don't want to be Amish, I think probably not. Because I mean, you need a cell phone. You need otherwise, people look at you weird. Just, yeah, but not I, now.
0: I, I don't think that's what... Stefan Hoyer. Where are you, Stefan? But I don't think that's what you really you you, you meant using art as a kind of conceptual defense for against uh, a, a kind of uniform mediated reality. Is that what you meant? Interesting. I I I would think the only defense against this type of thing is
2: once again many hands building it because then many hands would be informed about it. And I guess it could be considered a big art project at that point. Everybody creating their own interpretation of what society should be and other people interacting with it. I think that's as... Is that answering your question at all? I hope? Well, I was wondering if bots can pass themselves up as humans if they can create art. Or art, art bots. About- art bots. I'll bet if you go to Google and type in art bots, you'll probably find a whole it, club.
0: Well, in fact, there, there's a, a wonderful book by one of our friends, Pamela McCorda, called uh, Aaron's Code... I think that was the title. So it's yeah. like fractals in yeah. a way. Well, it's just repeating patterns. was about, in fact, art bots making Interesting. Art. Okay, there's uh, the answer and to two that. It's a few years old. Uh, uh, so it, it, it exists. The, the art bots there we are, go. are already out there. Uh, fan question. Sure. Okay, so what do you hope for from the movie?
2: Uh, uh, no, i got to be careful what I say here. Let's see, no, no casting choices here. No, no, no. Uh, we did
0: Tom Cruise already. Uh,
2: so. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Good. Uh, I hope they don't mess it up, and I hope they, they leave some subtlety in it. But I have good hopes for it. I do.
0: And the sequel? I mean, those of you don't—a painful fact. I mean, this is a spoiler. This is only volume one. That's right. There's a sequel. Coming, Fair warning. Uh, and uh, we are anxious for it. When do we get the sequel?
2: Ah, you'll have to talk to Dutton about that. Because I was going to release it in November, but now this is going to release be released January. So sometime after that.
0: So I hope that doesn't have, have piss you written anybody it yet? off.
2: Have uh, Most of it. Most of it. Most any, of it. Any,
0: any hints? Uh, like it.
2: Yeah, you'll like <laughs> you'll it. You'll like it. Yeah, my wife says That's that. it.
0: Yeah, right. Any, any hints?
2: No, no, no hints. No hints. Maybe you, but I don't want to put it out. Yeah,
0: All right. Thank you, Daniel Suarez. Suarez. My pleasure. Thank you.